The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning. Well, just to remind you right off the top, the National Council of Investigative and Security Services is having their uh, midwinter meeting in Las Vegas this coming Sunday through Tuesday, September 20th through the 22nd. If you're interested, go to www.ncis.org. And don't forget, the California Association of Licensed Investigators is holding a one-day seminar um, in Southern California for the newly licensed investigators. These are brand new investigators in the last 18 months. And that information, that's on the 26th, Saturday the 26th, org. Today, we are discussing judgment enforcement. It is absolutely astonishing that 80% of financial judgments awarded are never collected. I'm excited to have an expert in the area of judgment enforcement on the show today, Joe Dickerson. Hi, Joe. Good morning, Ms. Fancy. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Joe, you, you know, you're the, you're the co-founder and CEO of Financial Forensic Services, LLC, but you started out the Houston Police Department. How did you get from there to here? Well, when I was a kid growing up I uh, in East Texas, I always either wanted to be a detective or a minister. And so I went <laughs> off to Methodist Junior College, and uh, while I was there, I decided probably law enforcement was going to be a better way for me to be of service to my fellow man. So I, I went into law enforcement, was fortunate, and I got on the Houston Police Department that I only had to spend a couple of years uh working in uniform in the ghetto, and uh, then got promoted and went to the police academy, and from there was the youngest guy to make detective in the Houston Police Department in those days, which I don't know if that was uh, an asset or a liability, but uh, we survived that, and uh, then became uh, one of the founding members of the Organized Crime Bureau in Texas uh, back in the early 70s, and had to work off-duty like every cop did, and instead of being a bouncer to beer joint or working construction traffic, uh, I chose to set up a little company to do security and crime prevention consulting. And as it evolved in Houston, all of my clients were uh, oil companies or manufacturers and distributors of oil field equipment. And uh, I did very well with that. And my clients wanted more and more work and of course were wanting me to do investigative work which would have been a conflict of interest while I was on the department so mm-hmm. after 11 years I had to decide whether I was going to 
be hard-headed and put in my 20 years if I was going to run my business. And I chose to leave the government to run my practice. And at that time, we added to the business uh, the Oil and Gas Crime Prevention Bureau. So I chased oil field thieves all over the United States and Canada and Mexico during those years and did a lot of teaching to corporate security and to law enforcement on how to investigate white-collar and blue-collar crime in the oil and gas industry. And uh, that worked very well until the mid-'80s when the bottom dropped out of the oil market, and all of a sudden I had no clients. Interesting. So So I've got to ask this, Joe. Now, so what is an oil and gas thief? What do they do? Well, in those days, uh, the oil business was so great that – Everybody that could was drilling oil wells. Consequently, uh, the demand for equipment was tremendous. So, therefore, the demand for stolen equipment was great because the stealing industry responds to supply and demand just like any other part of our economy. So, uh, we had companies that were set up, they would take custom orders, they'd have an office and a warehouse. People would call in, they would order what they wanted, and from the manufacturers, it was taking 12 to 15 months to deliver new merchandise, but these thieves and fences would take the order, send their people out to steal the equipment in the next two or three days, bring it in, uh, sandblast it, change the serial number, repaint it, and deliver Mm -hmm. it next Monday. So they were getting 100 to 125% of book value as long as they were stealing there was a need for replacement equipment. As long as there was a need for equipment, somebody would buy, and as long as they would buy, somebody else would steal. So, of course, they were also stealing geographical information and uh, everything else, but the bulk of the work was actually with equipment and the actual merchandise product. Fascinating. Okay, that's interesting. So, um, okay, so... You got into the area of judgment enforcement. So how did that develop? Well, when the bottom dropped out of the oil market, like I said, I had to rethink my practice, and I had a vacation home in Colorado, so I decided it was a good chance after 20 years of being in Houston to escape and came to Colorado. And, uh, of course, the economy was horrible when the the oil industry failed, and that Mm. rolled through our entire economy. We had a lot of bank failures and failures of savings and loans that – uh, some of us, like you and I, can remember that period. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there wasn't much business for investigation work. So to get my foot in the door, I started uh, training paralegals in the evening free of charge for continuing education. And one night after class, a young lady came up. She said, Mr. Dickerson, I think you need to know my boss, and I know he needs to know you. So I said, well, who do you work for? And she worked for the head of the legal department of FDIC. Hmm. So make that story a little shorter, I ended up becoming a consultant with FDIC uh, for all the failed banks that uh, they were taking over. They had thousands and thousands of judgments on the books that had never been collected, and they had neither the manpower nor the expertise to do that. So they would assign a couple of their attorneys and a couple of their uh, staff investigators to augment my staff, and together we recovered gazillions of dollars for the government, and during that time, I had my staff do some research, and we found out that 80% of the civil judgments in the United States are never collected. 
and mm. my little light bulb started flickering, and I said, gosh, this is a business. So is a business, as that yeah. worked out, and we got things settled with FDIC, and they finally closed their Denver office here, we just changed our investigation practice to strictly doing judgment enforcement or prejudgment due diligence, and we've been so blessed. We've gone from local to state to national and now international, and about uh, 15% of our work is international in addition to working all over the United States now. That's amazing. And what a, what a great business model because, it, I mean, I guess I wasn't aware until I started reading up on this that there were so many judgments that went uh, unenforceable or un, uncollected. Um, yeah. People well, see, think, the you know, they, person they think that if they go to court and yeah. the court awards them a judgment, that the court makes them pay. And that's not true. The court just applies the law to the fact situation as it is presented by the attorneys and then makes a ruling. And if your facts are right, uh, you win. And the court says, okay, you've been damaged. You're entitled to recover $5 million plus cost and interest. Uh, here's a copy of your judgment suitable for framing. Have a nice day. And Good luck. Uh, yeah, and you're on your own. Yeah, and yeah. So you got to start over and actually find assets and physically take them from the debtor. Yeah, yeah. It's a sad. It really is a sad state, actually, because uh, people do get away. Not maybe not with murder, but uh, certainly with affecting somebody else's ad- assets dramatically. So that's right. Okay, so your specialty is judgment enforcement, and, and I, I mentioned before, your, the name of your company is Financial Forensic Services, LLC. What does that actually mean? What is financial forensic? Well, everybody thinks of forensic as being autopsies or, in the investigation <laughs> world, maybe forensic accountants, and that's certainly true, but forensic actually means for court purposes. Okay. So since there's a judgment, we have to go back to court to get court orders to be able to take the assets of the debtor. So we have a very narrow niche. We only do, like I said, judgments and prejudgment due diligence, mostly judgments. And so we have databases, expertise. I've been so blessed with a fabulous staff that's made up. My wife, Stephanie, was my banker. And I talked her into joining me back in 1998. She was operations manager for a chain of banks. So she understands all of the paperwork and the flow of banks. And, of course, that's very important in our business. So she's been a real blessing to us. We've got Mm. people that have owned investigation companies for 30 years. We now have a staff attorney on board and a, a group of people that bring different talents to business and together uh, we can get deeper in and find things that are beyond the surface. So it's matter of financial forensic is really digging very deep into various sources of information, pulling that together, evaluating it, and then applying the expertise to make that happen. Interesting. So what, Joe, what do you, I mean, there are some investigators that do asset research and do the kind of th- and say they do the kind of thing that that you do what makes you different well our company applies 
what I call a diagnostic and prescriptive approach to our cases. And if you will think about the medical profession, um, we all have family practitioners, a general practitioner that we go to whenever there's a problem, and that's fine. They do a great job for us, but if they tell us that we need heart surgery, they refer us to a specialist that is a heart surgeon, and they perform that surgery for us, and they have a very narrow area of expertise, whatever the specialty is. Mm-hmm. So like the doctors, we have to figure out what the problem is, not necessarily when the clients come to us. Typically, they have been through uh, two or three law firms, uh, four or five private investigators that have done some general investigation work and said, okay, here's what we found. Mm-hmm. Well, they're typically treating the symptoms, not the problems. So we spend a lot of time with our prospective clients uh, interviewing them. They are interviewing us to see if they want us to work for them. But in reality, we're also interviewing them because we don't take 80% of the cases that come to us because they don't fit our model of what we can do and how we can help them. So we refer that work to other investigators around the country and only take those that really will apply. And I want to hear the story. I am as interested in the psychographics of my debtor that I'm going after our target as I am the demographics. Mm -hmm. I want to know what makes them tick. And the client usually has had an ongoing relationship with them or they wouldn't have had a situation that caused them to end up with a judgment. For instance, um, we had a case that was brought to us. It was uh, several million dollars, and the client had worked with the target uh, in business over the years, knew him personally, thought they were friends. And uh, so I was talking to him said, you know, tell me about this debtor. What, what's he about? How, what makes him tick? What does he like? What does he dislike? And one of the key things that I learned was that uh, he was a big game hunter and he had a lot of trophies in his home from his uh, big game hunting. And, of course, when we started our research, uh, you know, we look at real estate and banking and lawsuits and UCC filings and whether they own uh, airplanes and Mm. yachts and so forth. And in that, we found that he had got a hunting license every year for the last 10 years in Alaska. Hmm. And I found out uh, that he was buying his home. So I think this, this may be a good example. When, when you're buying your home, uh, you're making payments on it. You are actually making a payment for four things every month. PITI, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance. Right. So it seems logical if your finance company, your bank, or your mortgage company is escrowing for this, and they're paying your insurance premium, so if the house burns down, they get their money. They know who the insurance company is. They know the address of the insurance company, and they know your policy number because they've got to send the premium in every year. Okay. So we, will, we will have the attorneys subpoena the finance company for the name, address, and policy number for the homeowner's insurance policy, then send a subpoena to the insurance company for a copy of that homeowner's policy with all of the schedules and attachments to it. And thereon, you will find 
listed their antiques, their jewelry, their furs, their guns, and other valuable personal property that's not in public record anywhere. And, of course, in this case, this guy had all of his hunting rifles and so forth scheduled on his policy because they were very expensive. Mm-hmm. With that information, we then went to the court and said, Your Honor, this guy has all of this valuable personal property. We would like a writ of execution so we can, you can direct the sheriff to raid his house and confiscate his assets and sell them to help satisfy this judgment, which happened. So, of course, we always go with the sheriff, and actually we do the work under the sheriff's authority of inventorying all the assets and get a bonded storage moving company to take care of everything. So the first thing I directed the moving people to do is he had a big white polar bear standing there with the claws <laughs> up in the air, standing up nearly seven feet tall. I said, wrap this polar bear up in all the bubble wrap, whatever you've got to do, let's get him loaded up. And when you get through with that, I want the moose and the caribou off the wall. And the debtor came over and explained to me he wasn't too happy about that in not too polite terms. And said, what's it going to take to get you off of my tail? And I said, look, I'm a very reasonable man. All we want is 100% plus cost and interest, and we'll go away. But in the meantime, you need to understand, you and I are business partners, and I'm going to take part of every dollar you make for the rest of your life till my client gets his money. We stood right there in the family room and got 100% settlement and did not have to load a single item onto the moving van, <laughs> nor have a sale. So that's we connected amazing. the dots. Yeah. Well, that that's fabulous. And um, so what does it take to get a writ of execution? Is that difficult? Well, yeah, you have to have evidence that there are assets there that are non-exempt. Uh, you know, a preponderance of evidence so the court will allow you to go do that. You have the right to take their assets from them directly or from third parties that may have them through fraudulent transfers. So the court order is issued to the sheriff. It says to any peace officer of the state, but it means the sheriff's civil division. And uh, they execute. There are certain things that are exempt, like you can't take the tools of their trade, the pots and pans, they keep a Bible, uh, they keep their uh, bed, and a few things like that. But generally speaking, most non-exempt assets, and the, the exempt assets are much the same as they are in bankruptcy. You know, you can keep your wedding rings and so forth. Oh, that, and, that's uh, great. So you can keep your tools, your Bible, your bed, and your wedding rings. Okay, we have to yeah, take a break. Well, at show. least the mattress. We don't necessarily get to keep okay. the antique oh, uh, bed okay. frame and, and nightstand. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, we have to take a break. Stay so- tuned. Joe Dickerson will be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. 
For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Joe Dickerson is an internationally recognized expert and instructor in financial investigations and judgment enforcement. And Joe, you were just talking about um, a writ of execution on this guy that had a lot of assets in Alaska. So did did you um, have to? How did you do the jurisdictional um, writ of execution? Did you have to file something in Colorado, then then file something in Alaska? How did that work? Well. Yeah, you get your judgment uh, in whatever state the debtor lives in or where the act occurred, typically where where it occurred and where they live is usually the same. And then if you have to go to another state under the Uniform Judgment Enforcement Act, a sister state will recognize a judgment from another state. So you have to really take your judgment, present it to the court. They will, by law, recognize that judgment so then you have a judgment in alaska and under alaska law their court then can issue the same subpoenas or other legal documents that you would get in the state where the judgment was actually uh, rendered originally Mm -hmm. and And you have to find do all states participate in that uh i believe uh Probably all of them do now. When I first went into business, there were 18 states involved in that. Uh, I think nearly all of them, if not all, are now. If they are not a party to the Uniform Act, you can still go to the court, uh, present your judgment, and get it recognized there. It's just a little longer process and a little more expensive. But I, I believe just about all the states are just like you can many times do the same thing internationally through another process, which is more complicated and much more expensive. Right, right. And I also, I, I wasn't actually um, aware that you, as a as the judgment enforcer person, uh, went with the marshal to inventory the property. That is really interesting. Well, it's not required, but most of the sheriff's departments that we deal with uh, are more than happy to have somebody help them with their work. And since... That's what we do. We know what we typically don't want to take pots and pans and junk furniture and stuff. We want valuable assets. 
One thing mm-hmm. we always ask the court to do are through our attorneys, and maybe I should explain that since I've had a continuing legal education company for 25 years training attorneys in how to do judgment enforcement. So we have mm-hmm. contacts with attorneys all over the country, and part of the service that we added to our repertoire a few years ago for our clients is that we will help them locate, hire, and then supervise the attorneys to execute against the assets that we find or to assist us with additional discovery by issuing the subpoenas that we need. So we stay targeted on result-oriented activities instead of how many of the attorney's kids we can put through college on my client's money. Mm-hmm. We won't. Mm-hmm. So if we control the purse, we can pretty well control uh, the work so that we stay targeted. And Because this is not something that's taught in the law schools. We had our staff do some research last year of the top 50 law schools in the United States to see what they teach about judgment enforcement in their regular curriculum when attorneys or when students are going through law school, and the answer was zero. We had one of the 50 schools said, oh, yeah, there are two days in one of our courses that we talk about that subject for an hour or two. So the attorneys that know judgment enforcement have to get it from a mentor or through continuing legal education and experience. So the average attorney that gets the judgment doesn't necessarily have the expertise to enforce the judgment, thus the frustration of the clients that have gone through several attorneys and been unsuccessful but have a stack of canceled checks. Right, And no result. Interesting. So that's part of the process. Okay, so you you mentioned that there are many cases that you don't take. What kind of a case wouldn't you take? Well, if it's, and I don't mean to sound big time, but the work that we do is expensive. Uh, The resources that we have to find these assets take time, they take money, and it takes expertise to interpret these. For instance, one of the things we have the ability to do now with some of our attorneys is we can follow wire transfers anywhere in the world. And I'll tell you about that in a moment. But uh, that process alone is going to cost uh, twenty-five dollars to $50,000 in legal fees. So if you're trying to recover $50,000, you don't want to be spending that kind of money uh, on your case. Even though you usually have the right to recover legal fees, it doesn't make sense. Uh, so we are typically looking at cases of a minimum of 100000 to 500000 up to Fifty million or so for the clients that we're working for, and we have to have clients that are committed to actually making both an emotional and a financial investment in the case. And mm-hmm. Everybody says, "Oh, I don't care about the money; it's the principle of the thing." Well, mm-hmm. when they get their second invoice, all of a sudden, it's the <laughs> principle and the interest, and they're not so sure they're that PO'd about the thing. So it's got to be the right fit and the right cause to make sense for the client because I don't want to take the client's money if it's not something we can help them with and do a good job for. And you, so then you charge by the hour. You're not charging uh, based on the award. No, not necessarily. We uh, typically, the first question is always, well, what's it going to cost and how long is it going to take? Right. And if it's an attorney asking the question, my response is, well, counselor, what do you charge to try a lawsuit? (laughs) Well, uh, That depends. Well, that's your answer. It depends. So to be fair with the client and so we can have an idea, 
we typically will do a little bit of research on our own nickel just to see if we're talking about a person that has lived in the same city all their life uh, as a renter. Maybe they're not even a homeowner. Maybe their car is 10 years old. you got a million-dollar judgment against that person uh, that's worked for minimum wage all their life and may have five or six judgments against them and tax bills they've never paid. There's no need for me to take that client's money because mm-hmm. we're not going to get them any results. Nobody's going right. to because it's not there. So we will look at it, give them a budget to do the preliminary work to see if we can find assets, and that is typically done on a flat fee. So we know what our budget is, the client knows what their obligation is, then we'll give them a written report of our findings with our recommendations on what should be done to recover the money. And at that point, if they want us to go forward, we will work either hourly or in many cases we will do a modified contingency where we give them a significantly reduced hourly rate that's a blended rate for everybody in our firm, from the lowest rate up to the highest rate. They get a mm-hmm. significantly reduced hourly rate, and then we take a percentage of the net recovery after cost. And that model is probably 80 90% of the work we do, particularly on the large judgments. So if we're not successful and we don't make a significant recovery, we haven't broke the client. And if mm-hmm. we have made good recovery, uh, and we're not going to take it if it doesn't look like we probably can, then a small percentage of that is not going to break the client. They're still going to have the lion's share because they're the victim and they are entitled right. to recover. So it's and, got to be act- fair for the client. It's not fair right. for the client. It's not fair for anybody. So we, we can find creative ways to work with them. And this prim- preliminary forensic research, shouldn't that be done before the case is filed instead of after the judgment is received? In the ideal world, yeah. But Very seldom does a client come to us and say, I am anticipating having to sue John Doe, and uh, I want to know before I spend the money on the attorneys, if we win, is there anything there to collect? We mm-hmm. encourage clients to do that, but typically they've already got the judgment, they've been trying to collect it, they haven't had any luck and we get a referral or they find us through various speaking engagements and conferences that I've spoken at or they've read articles that we've written that have been published in trade journals or read our newsletter or something, and they call and say, help. Uh, sure, yeah. But, so yeah, what we'd advice... love to get it up front, but seldom do we do it. Right. What advice would you give somebody... Uh, for the cases that you don't take, the cases that are under that, maybe you know, maybe somebody has a a judgment, say for fifty thousand or thirty thousand or whatever. What what advice do you give those folks? Well, again, I will spend some time with them, find out as much about their case and their debtor as we can, and then we'll refer them to somebody that can help them and tell them, you know, depends on what their relationship is with the debtor too. Because if it's a former business partner, then they're going to have a lot of information about uh, where the company banks, where the where the debtor banks, for instance. So with that information, then an attorney, which we do under our direction uh, on the larger cases, we will uh, have them <clears throat> subpoena the bank and garnish any account that's there. And everybody thinks, oh, you garnish the bank, you get your money, or you garnish their income. 
never, ever seen a judgment satisfied by garnishing the debtor's pay every two weeks when they get paid. You get X percent of their salary. You're never mm-hmm. going to get enough to pay even the interest on these judgments. But if you garnish the bank for whatever's in the bank accounts and the savings accounts and any non-exempt money, that may be enough to help pay with the legal fees. But at the same time you're sending that garnishment, you want to send a subpoena uh, to the bank for at least the last 24 months of credits and debits. So you see all of their sources of income, and you Mm. can go to the source of income to take the money before it hits their bank account, for instance. If you see in there they're getting deposits for oil and gas income, I'm not interested in their monthly or quarterly check from the oil and gas producers. I'm interested in taking the mineral rights or the overriding interest that the debtor owns in the well, then you get everything they own, not what they get every month. And Mm -hmm. then you start getting the serious stuff. So we want to subpoena, like I said, usually 24 months, sometimes longer, of credits and debits. So you also see where their money's going. So you see if they're wiring money to offshore accounts. You see if they're uh, making large down payments on real estate. You see if they've set up several other business entities that money's going to. So you want to follow the money, both going out and reverse coming in so you can go to the source. At the same time, that subpoena should also ask for any loan applications because there's tremendous information on an application for a loan. And if you're borrowing from a like a bank, um, you're going to have to, with your loan application, submit usually three years of tax returns and three years of financial statements. And the bank has to give you that if you ask for it in your subpoena which mm-hmm. you can, so then I get three years of their tax returns to analyze. I get three years of financial statements, so I see all their listed assets on their financial statement, and if they have a financial statement that says they have uh, half a million dollars worth of art, and we'll take that and ask the court for a writ of execution to go raid the house and take it, but if they don't have it, did you have it when you filled out this application? Or did you lie to the bank? Because if the bank relies on your financial statement for a loan and you get that loan, you've just committed bank fraud by lying Mm -hmm. on a financial statement. So then the question I get to ask them is, would you rather deal with bank fraud or would you rather deal with paying your debt to my client? Which do you think would be better for you? Sure. And you know the answer. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Tremendous amount of information that way. Very interesting. So, so you start out you start out by interviewing the client to determine what the problem is, right? And then you, then you come up with a strategy on how you're going to um, ferret out this information. That's the prescriptive part of the thing. We talked about being diagnostic and prescriptive. So, okay. in being prescriptive, once we diagnose it and figure out what has happened and what the problem is. And what the client's temperament is, what we think they want to accomplish and what they really want to accomplish may be two different things. They may Mm. just want to uh, exert as much punishment and get bad press for this person so it will hurt their businesses uh, more Mm -hmm. than they want their money back. They may have some underlying situations. Well, I'm not really in that business, but if it becomes a byproduct of what we're doing, you know, we can enforce the judgment if 
the client wants to make the press aware of it, and it's newsworthy. That's their business, but they got to be very careful about that. Uh, but are you really after 100% recovery and committed to get it? If so, then we will prescribe the process, which starts with getting the right attorney or attorneys on board. We've got a case right now that uh, we've had for uh, quite a while where our client is from France and Switzerland, his problem is with a U.S. attorney that uh, got in the business of buying uh, portfolios of non-performing mortgages, and he was buying them, you know, a thousand uh, mortgages at a time. And uh, the client invested with him, and this guy was a fraudster. And they came to a settlement agreement when. A, the client found out that he had been defrauded on this, and that he really wasn't buying all these judgments. He was just moving money around. They came to a settlement agreement, and guess what? The guy didn't pay him. So he hmm. hired a law firm and said, sue him and get my money. So when he called me, that law firm had won the judgment and had been working on collecting it for 15 months. And, Francie, they were so good by themselves, without any outside help, that law firm had already collected. The judgment was a, a eighteen and a quarter million dollars. My goodness, eighteen million two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and in only fifteen months, the law firm had already collected nearly four thousand dollars. Hmm. <laughs> I see. The client didn't <laughs> think that was a very good bucket. return on his money. <laughs> no. no, not <laughs> so. exactly. Yeah, so, so they what, authorized so, us to, to go interview the law firm, which we did, and I listened to them for about three or four hours and finally said, you know, with the client's authority, okay, you're free to go represent somebody else now because you're no longer representing this client. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're terminated, and I'll tell you where to send the files when we hire the attorneys to replace you. We did hire some other attorneys, and we started finding assets all over the United States, and then we had to hire an attorney in each state to issue subpoenas and do garnishments and stuff in those states. And at one point, we were managing nine law firms for that client in different parts of the United States. That sounds overwhelming. <laughs> I well, you're talking about a lot of money. overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But that's what's different about what we do is, that, you know, we're not only running your usual searches, but we're getting a lot deeper and then applying the information we find to recovery and to additional intelligence to lead to the next thing. It leads to the next thing. It leads to the next thing. And I mentioned a while ago about the ability to uh, follow wire transfers. Your your audience may find this interesting. Uh, We work with a law firm that can uh, actually follow the wire transfers around the country. For instance, uh, we found one of our debtors that was supposed to be in California, and the client called us, and they couldn't find them to get them served for some additional discovery. So we went to work. Stephanie did her research, and she found that the reason they couldn't find them in California is because the debtor was now in Saudi Arabia building airports. Uh So I called the client and said, you know, Call your guys off. Your process servers are not going to find him in Orange County. He's actually in Saudi, and he's building airports. If you'd like to know about his company, we can get that information and find out where they're banking and let you recover your money, if you would like. 
absolutely, go do it. So we did that, and in the process, learned that he also was working in other countries. So we suggested that we follow the money. So we had this law firm subpoena the intermediary banks. When when wire transfers are sent around the world, 95% of them are better go through a few banks in New York that are called intermediary banks where the wires are cleared. So in this case, the debtor wire transferred $10 million from Saudi Arabia Bank. They went through the New York banks, and they went to... Uh, a bank in London, and from London, they moved, for example, uh, to make it simple, that $10 million then went to 10 different banks in 10 different countries at a million dollars apiece. And we were able to get all of those wires and follow that money from Saudi through New York to London and from London to 10 other accounts in 10 different countries by subpoenaing the intermediary banks and the courts have held that the information does not belong to the bank that is sending the information, nor to the owner of that account, nor does that information belong to the one that's receiving it. It belongs to the intermediary bank who it was sent to. Therefore, they don't have a dog in the fight. We Mm -hmm. subpoena them. They have to give it to us. So we can literally follow that money anywhere. It's expensive, but when you're chasing millions of dollars, you know, a few thousand is not that bad a deal. So the only way you can trace a wire transfer is to go from from the sending bank to the intermediate intermediary bank to the next intermediary bank to the final location. Well, That's the from only the way you intermediary can trace bank that? to the receiving bank, yes. I, right, if, right. Right. Then you may have to start over if it's gone from there, been wired elsewhere. Huh. So it's an ongoing process, but then you can get international freezing orders, freeze the money in the bank where it you find it, and then hire attorneys in that country to get the money released. And what at what point would you have a writ of examination where you're actually bringing them into court? You mean for a deposition? For a deposition, yes. Well, unfortunately... That's usually the first thing that the attorney wants to do. Uh, You know, you have the right to bring the debtor in and subpoena all of their records and have them come forth and you question them about where their assets are and get all their documents. In fact, I had an attorney in Ohio just, uh, we were telling him, I wanted him to subpoena this and send this document here and this there. And he said, oh, Mr. Dickerson, you don't understand. In Ohio, we have a process whereby we can compel the debtor to come to our office and bring all of their financial statement. And under oath, they have to tell us where all their assets are. <laughs> I said, well, Counselor, how's that working out for you? <laughs> well, it hasn't been, you know, we haven't. Well, there's your problem. Uh, I've been doing this for a little over 50 years now. And I have sat in on hundreds, if not thousands, of depositions and I can tell you, Francie, not one time have I ever seen a debtor come to the deposition and produce the subpoena to documents and tell the truth. The only thing you accomplish by doing a debtor's exam early, in my opinion, based on our experience, is by the nature of the questions that are propounded to the debtor, 
You tell him what you know about the case and where you're headed to try to make recovery so they can go out and really hide the assets and move them again and again. We don't ever do depositions of debtors until we're 75 to 80% through the case. And then if there's some things that we haven't found or if we want to get some perjury on the record to use for leverage, we'll bring them in, have the attorneys put them under oath, depose them, and then when they tell their lies, uh, you just have to sit there with a straight face and listen to them for hours, sometimes two or three days, and after they've told all the lies they want to tell to your questions, you say, now, I understand that you have no bank accounts because you've so testified uh, on direct examination, correct? That's right. Okay, I'd like to show you what we've marked as Exhibit A. Mm-hmm. This purports to be a bank statement from Wells Fargo Bank directed, this is your name and your home address here at the top of this document, is it not? Well, yes. So this would be a bank statement to you from Wells Fargo, and <laughs> does it not say that you have XYZ in the bank? Oh, that account. I forgot all about that. I thought my I wife told that account. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. you refresh their memory about their bank accounts and about their yacht and about their airplane and about this and that and the other. And at some point during the deposition, that same question's coming back. Okay, what's it going to take to make you go away? And the standard answer is, we wish you no ill will. We wish you ever success, but, you know, all we want is 100%. Now, we may at that point forgive the interest on the loan to get 100% of the principal or forgive some of the cost. That's up to the client. You don't want to bleed them for everlasting nickel if you don't have to, but we're going to get, if they have it, we're going to get a substantial amount of the client's money back. And if they don't have it, the sooner we can determine that and get the client out of the chase and quit having them pour good money after bad, we've still provided a good service to the client because we let them cut the bleeding and heal, which has to happen at some point. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Stop the bleeding. So who is your typical client, Joe? How do do they locate you? Well, hopefully they're listening to this program. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I, I do a lot of uh, continuing education courses, uh, speaking to uh, law firms or through their CLE uh, programs in the various states of the bar associations. We're members of the American Bar Association, so we do training for attorneys. Uh, I speak at a lot of trade associations at their uh, monthly or annual meetings. Uh, we write articles that have been republished. We uh, have a lot of response to our website, and uh, we also publish a newsletter. And been around for a long time, and we get a lot of referrals from from clients that have been kind enough to say a good word about us. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why don't Why don't you give your website, Joe, uh, in case people would like to contact you or have questions? Certainly, it's www.financialforensicservices.com. And okay. forensic is singular. Some people want to make it forensic services, yeah. and it won't go that way, financialforensicservices.com. And that's also my email if anybody wants to email me with a question. It's joe at financialforensicservices.com. Yeah, and on your website, I noticed that you have a whole list of, uh, pro- the, a list of your processes from the, from the problem to the 
uh, recovery process, which is kind of interesting reading in case anybody would like to read that and, and check it out. Um, uh, it's pretty general, but, you know, it's a starting place. Exactly. And and one of the things I was interested in, uh, you have a, uh, something that's titled Fraudulent Conveyances. Yes. What are some... What are some of the ways that uh, people try to hide their assets? Well, that is through fraudulent conveyances, and each state has a fraudulent conveyance act or fraudulent transfer act. It's the same thing. And there's also the uniform act, which uh, is adopted by, uh, I guess, nearly every state in the United States now. And in those acts, there are what they call the badges of fraud, which means indicators of fraud, and we look for those and actually use that in just about every case. And I can briefly tell you what those are. And the badges of fraud means an indicator of fraud, so there's no magic number of these. There are nine of them, and uh, the more of them you can show to the court, the more likely you're going to get your writ of execution or whatever the appropriate document is to make your recovery. And those uh, badges of fraud or indications of fraud are as follows. A lack of consideration for the conveyance. We all know that any contract uh, requires consideration because if there's no consideration, the contract's not valid. That's why you'll see in many documents, uh, like a deed where property is sold, you'll say, this property is conveyed for $10 and other good and valuable consideration. What that mm-hmm. means is the $10 is there was legal tender, but it's none of your business how much I sold my house for. But we've complied okay. with the law. Well, there are really ways to find that out, too, which is another story. But um, you have to have consideration for the conveyance. So if I give you my house or I give my house to uh, my children or my brother-in-law or convey it to my trust or I set up a corporation or a partnership and move ownership of my house into that, and you meet some of these other batches of fraud, that's an indication of fraud. The second one is transfer the debtor's entire estate. Uh, if today you own a million dollars worth of assets in cars and planes and boats and stock and real estate, and tomorrow you've known none and you've done your entire estate, that's an indication that it was probably done fraudulent. And the key words in fraudulent transfer or fraudulent conveyance are, was it done to, quote, hinder, delay, or defraud the, the uh, creditor? So the court will assume that it was done for that if you meet several of these uh, badges. The, the third one is the relationship between the transfer and the transferee. Is it an insider deal? Is it husband to wife? Is it wife to children? Is it husband and wife to a trust or an entity or something that they've set up? Uh, is it arm's length or is there a relationship between the seller and the buyer? The next one is pendency or threat of litigation. Was it done when you were about to be sued or you have been sued, or after the judgment? Uh, Did you move it because of the litigation? Well, when did you know? That's when we start putting together our timelines. When did you know uh, that there might be litigation? Well, I would submit to you if the the money was borrowed from a bank or a financial institution, you knew it when you borrowed the money because the loan document, the fine print, says if you don't pay the money back, we can sue you. So you were on notice whether you read the fine print or not. Uh, the next one is secrecy or hurried transaction. 
you know, did you do it under normal circumstances or did you hurry up and get this thing done? The sixth one is insolvency or indebtedness of the transferor. The debtor always said, oh, I'm insolvent. I can't pay that. Well, if you moved all your assets out and you made yourself insolvent by putting your assets in somebody else's name, that's an indication that it was a fraudulent transfer. Mm-hmm. And uh, the next one is departure uh, from the usual method of doing business. You know, how do we usually sell our property? Maybe list it with a realtor and they show it and you get an offer and then you counter offer and then you sell it. Or you put a for sale by owner in the front yard and hope somebody calls. That's a normal way of selling your house. But if you own it today and tomorrow your brother-in-law owns it, that may not be the normal process. Uh, you combine that with... Uh, Retention by debtor of possession. Did you change the ownership, but you still possess the asset? Mm, uh, mm-hmm. One of our guys had uh, a condo that uh, in the mountains, and he was a realtor, so he would let his prospective uh, purchasers of property, his customers, go up and use his condo and go skiing and so forth. And uh, so when we started after him to collect the judgment, he transferred it and put it into a children's trust but he still kept it. He still used it, just like he always had. And mm-hmm. then he did the ninth and final badge of fraud, uh, reservation of benefit to the transferor. He used that condo that was in the children's trust name as collateral for a loan to borrow money so he could fight me <laughs> and the attorney that we'd hired to collect the bank's money. <laughs> so in that one transaction, you had several of the badges of fraud. We had lack of consideration because he didn't pay or the trust didn't pay anything for it. It was not his entire estate. Relationship between the transferee and the transferee, absolutely. He set up the trust. Pendency or threat of litigation. Already had a judgment. Secrecy or hurry? Yeah, he did it overnight. Insolvency or indebtedness? See? A lot of people think, excuse me, Joe, I'm sorry. Uh, A lot of people think that if they set up an irrevocable trust, they're protected, but they're not protected. Well, uh, for our purposes, there are two kinds of trust. They may have many different names, but it's either revocable or irrevocable. People don't realize that the revocable trust, which probably 90% of them are, have no asset protection. It's like your alter ego. It's the same as you, so we can just take everything out of it. If it is an irrevocable trust, it generally does have 100% asset protection, but we're not attacking the trust in those circumstances, we are attacking the conveyance of the asset into the trust under these badges of fraud, and we can show that it was done under four or five or six of these badges of fraud, then the judge will just literally unwind the transaction. Therefore, the asset belongs back in the original name, and we have the right to take it. It belongs to us. Mm, and I say us, our client, obviously. Yeah. So, yeah, we can get assets out of uh, irrevocable trust if they were done fraudulently. And unfortunately, in our case, fortunate for us, uh, most of the cases we deal with, they are that way. That's why they're doing it. Now, if it was done for legitimate uh, estate planning purposes and it was done years before the judgment or the judgment was probably going to happen and so forth, then, no, we can't touch it. But that's unusual in our kind of cases we get. Okay. All right, Joe, we've got just a couple of minutes left. Uh, what advice would you give to um, young investigators or maybe investigators that aren't experienced in this area? What would you tell them? Well, 
first of all, um, let me say I I did write an article that was published several years ago, and if anybody is interested in a copy of it, if they will uh, email me, I'll be happy to send it to them. It's called 21 Things I Wish I Had Known When I Started My Investigation Business. There you go. That is the advice, but the main thing I would say is remember you're only as good as your credibility and your ethics are. And if you sacrifice your credibility, you sacrifice your ethics, you don't deserve to have business or a client. That is foremost up front. Secondly, you've got to look after the client's interest first. If you take care of the client's interest, your interest will be taken care of as a byproduct. That's great. It, Joe, it's so interesting to be able to talk to friends like you about your expertise. Oh, boy, thanks for taking the time to be on the show today. Uh, it's so interesting. Uh, I love talking to you and to my listeners here. Join me again next week. I hope you got something out of it uh, as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Joe Dickerson every Thursday morning. I'm Francie Kaler. It's PIs Declassify. Thanks for listening. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.